Hi guys. Welcome back to Into the Light, a different life story. My show on YouTube and as podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Housekeeping, please have a look down there. There's this big subscribe button. Subscribe and tell your friends because this is such a beautiful journey that I am on in which I explore those things that that normally hold us back and dwarf us and, and threaten us and make us feel yucky. And I explore it here with some wonderful guests so that we can learn from their stories when they have gone through hell and kept going and are now coming the other side. So share it with your friends, tell them about, about what we are doing here. There's so many people who could do with a message of hope and a message of, of you are not alone. and it's okay to be not okay. Let's let's spread that word. Let's demystify mental health. And that is what I'm all about on my show. So thank you very much for subscribing. And now today is a new day for a fantastic interview. I have got today Teresa Gonzalez with me. Teresa is an earth mum advocate. Uh, <laughs> exactly. That's what I thought. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's time to explore that. And it's a beautiful thing. But at the same token, uh, today is a, is, is a hard topic to address. And if you feel triggered and if there are some tears in yourself, allow yourself to feel these emotions and, and allow yourself to feel whatever you feel. And then hopefully we can arm you with, with hope and with a way forward that you're willing to maybe seek help and take it from there. Teresa Gonzalez, thank you so much for coming onto my show. It's such a pleasure to be here, Stefan, and just the opportunity to meet you and just the hopes of sharing my story and just to help others possibly through sharing is just a very humbling experience. When you were younger, I'm sure you didn't want to be an earth mum advocate. Um, what, what was the younger you like, Teresa, when you were in your 20s, when you were in as a teenager? What did you aspire to be? Who did you aspire to be? Hmm. Well, well, I think as a teenager, we we struggle with trying to find our way and define who we are. And over the years, I realized that knowing that I was different, I grew up with uh, three brothers and I was the only girl. And I didn't really fit in. They had cliques in high school that I didn't fit into. I, being the only girl... I wasn't allowed to do the guy things as much as I wanted to. So I really wanted to be a tomboy, but that in those days, it was, you, that wasn't what little girls did and just navigating your way. And the unfortunate thing um, I think we do a lot as teenagers is we do go with the crowd to navigate what we want to do with our life, but sometimes we make choices based on the influences of others. And that sort of led me down a path of partying, staying out late, all those sorts of things. And so that's what kind of got me into trouble and got me pregnant. And of course it fulfills a need. It fulfills something where you are shy, teenager were you were you self-conscious 
or did your parents instill a a a self confidence in you? I actually had a very loving home, um, but I think I did struggle with confidence issues. Being that I was quieter um, and shy as well, that a lot of times you are the target of bullies. So it's a lot more open now, but there was definitely a lot of bullying going on. And there was even a hierarchy of bullying. So where someone might have bullied me, followed me home, taunted me, I might have turned around and done it to someone else. And I look back at that time thinking, I, I feel bad for my actions, but as a teenager, sometimes that's the only answer that you have is that's how you release is picking on someone else you think is weaker or less confident than you, unfortunately. Well, that's our emotional immaturity. That is, that is, we want to lash out, but we don't dare to lash out in the right direction, i.e. against the bully, but so we lash out against the weaker ones. And it is, yeah. In, well, in, in our... A lot of times our our um, our development as a teenager, our brain isn't fully developed. So even our choices and the decisions that we make are not the same that we would make when we're 20 or 22. So that also influences our choice. Well, affects our choices mm. as well. Was your pregnancy a um, an attempt to rebel against your parents? Was the relationship a rebellion? No, uh, it was more, it might have had to do a little bit with the self-confidence and, you know, you attract the opposite sex and it was kind of cool. And mm -hmm. so you would get the attention and just putting yourself in a situation that you just don't think it's going to get that far. And, you know, dating someone for just, it was a short period of time. It was only three months. First boyfriend sexually active with, and again, just that whole teenage brain, oh, that's not going to happen to me. You know, it, it just doesn't phase you at the time until you get the test, right? And you're like, oh, what now? What now? So what happened? <laughs> I grew up in a very small town. The family doctor said to me that, well, you're Catholic, so you can't have an abortion. The <sighs> small community, God. there was not a lot of... <laughs> Um, this was would have been 1979-1980 and even though it wasn't the era of the 60s that we hear a lot of mistreatment of single moms it still happens a lot in the small communities mm -hmm. so when word got out that I was pregnant oh uh, town gossip um, you just it it really, that probably, if I had a low self-esteem to begin with, that just made it worse. Even the, 
again, I'm not saying anything against a church because a lot of times the, the people within the church are only human and they make mistakes. There was only a couple people in there that made it extremely difficult for me as well. And just the whole community and the people I thought were friends. There were a couple that supported me, but the other ones that just turned into gossip. And I, when I was five months pregnant, I said, that's it. I'm, I can't do it anymore. My family was facing a lot of the, the aftermath of everything. And so I just decided to find a home to stay in for the last four months of the pregnancy. It was about three hours away from my parents' home. And those four months felt more like four years being away from family. Yeah. So you you really, uh, you're put in a situation, you're away from your family. You, I don't know if it's just, I don't know if you actually mature faster, but you're faced with a lot of decisions at a young age and it forces you to, I don't know, because even after, after my son was born, some of the things that I did after the fact, I just looked at teenagers and I thought, I'm, I was way past that. Even though the decisions I made afterwards were still weren't the best, but yeah, you're forced into a difficult decision at a young age and that that can have repercussions and that can have lasting effects to any teenager and how it affects them for years to come. And what a trauma that is in its own right. What a change, all the emotions there. I mean, you're going through roller coasters of waves of dopamine and, and serotonin and whatever chaos is in your head beforehand is amplified. And then you're in social isolation uh, because that is the lesser evil. Keeping in mind that, what is it? One in 20 is at least the, the number of child sexual abuse, especially in the smaller communities, uh, those kind of things. So don't get me started on the church. Don't get me started on those people that looked down on you. If we were to pull actually the blinds up and have a really good look at their lives, you would be horrified. But mm -hmm. there are these kind of, oh, we are all so good in church. Really pisses me off. And... That's that's unfortunately reality, and that's again, again. It so is, and I I think it's more. I don't know if it's more. I wouldn't say hidden in small communities, but there's attempts to try and keep it behind closed doors. And of course, it is. I found out years later that a friend of mine in high school had been abused, and it wasn't until my parents decided to volunteer for the local RCMP for their victims assistance program. And they were shocked. They learned so much about what's happening in their community. And I says, there's so much of it out there. Absolutely. But again, you older generations, they don't talk about it. They expect you that anything that you face, whether it's abuse, a pregnancy, um, bullying, uh, eating disorders, you know, drinking drugs, anything like that, there's a tendency to, well, you know, forget about it, move on. That's not, not talk about it just sweep it under the rug but that 
keeps coming up time and again for a lot of people because you can't take a loss or a situation, abuse, anything of that sort that has really impacted someone, you know, to their soul and just assume that it's going to go away. It, it won't. And I'm the perfect example because I was told time and again, you know, forget about it. He's been adopted, move on. Well, you know, here I am 39, almost 40 years later. And it, it's still every thought on mother's day on his birthday. It's, it's there. We are already jumping the gun here and, and we'll already let the cat out. Um, oh but yes, the so bottom line is you, you actually moved four months away, which was an eternity. Did you then come back home for the birth of your son or where did you deliver? That was actually in the same city where I was staying at the home mm. for home for unwed mothers. Oh, you're kidding me. <laughs> that sounds like 1872. Just, <sighs> no, yes. no. But, but there was no Catholic nuns. Uh, there, you know, the woman that was running, it was actually quite a compassionate, caring woman. I remember her. It was first names only. We never spoke of last names. We never kept in touch with anybody. And for me, just when I went into the hospital, my mom caught a bus and was able to meet me at the hospital and be with me through part of the labor, which mm. was, was, really, was really awesome that she was there. But one of the pictures that has been absolutely ingrained in my mind that was back when they used to keep women for about five days. And so that would, women would breastfeed and they would teach them about that. My mom had already gone home and they said to me, they actually put me on, it wasn't the maternity ward. They put me on a ward, second floor, opposite end of the hospital. So I'd be far away from the nursery. And I literally had to take an elevator and walk to the opposite end just to get to see my son. And I found out there was actually a photographer who would take pictures of your child. And they wrecked, no, you shouldn't do that. No, that's, that's not good. You don't need a reminder. And I'm, I said, no way, I'm doing it. And so I was able to take some pictures when he was, I think it was only two or three days old. I was able to sit in a rocking chair and hold him for 10, 15 minutes and unfortunately, the good, those few good moments are countered by a lot of the negative in the hospital staff and they ignored you and they mistreated you. And they said, well, you made your bed, will you lie in it? And I had trouble sometimes getting out of, out of bed. They wouldn't help me, you know, if I, may I ask you, may I ask you, was that, so it was, was it known to them that you were a single mom or was it known to them that you would adopt your child? You give it away for adoption. I honestly don't know. There must have been something that when I went into the hospital that they knew that my, my son was going to go to adoption. Yeah. And how else would they have known if they had to have known if I was going to be placed at the opposite end of the hospital? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That is weird. So 
I don't understand the system, obviously, and and um, it is it's strange to see that such a segregation, so to speak, was being put on you, and it's like like you being put on. Yeah, in medieval Germany, we had a thing called a pranger. The pranger means it's, it's, it was stocks, the wooden stocks, your head through, hands through, and you were shamed in front of the whole village. That was that was the stocks in in medieval times. You uh, you had the equivalent there as far as maternity is concerned. Um, it is it's hard for me to to accept that and to realize that that this was still the case in the in the 70s uh, in in the United States it it is and it i know there is some improvement but i still see even to this day that shame associated with it and it is so unfortunate because you know someone who's pointing their finger at you and saying look at you and what you did all the while they go home and do something maybe even worse. Exactly. But it's so much easier to think finger point than to be gracious or compassionate to, to someone else who's going through a difficult time. But that's actually the one thing that I, I forgot to mention when I left the hospital, I had actually gone to the hospital in a taxi cab and I had left in a taxi cab. And I remember looking back, I'm sitting in the seat and I'm looking back towards the hospital, thinking that my son's in there. And maybe now with everything, how you were treated and shamed and talked about, maybe everyone will just leave me alone now because you're not pregnant. So you don't stand out. So they can't, you know, talk about you. But that was just the end of the visible shaming, I guess you could call it, where from that point on, it turned more internal. And, you know, the guilt that we put on ourselves and everything that we were told, you start to believe it. So even though I physically was no longer pregnant, there was so many internal issues that I never dealt with either. And they would have been not just from that particular moment starting, but there are all the other stupid voices that we have got in our heads laid down when you were four or five. And, you know, as children, we don't recognize that our parents are angry about our actions. They think we are angry about us. Um, so you've had all that trauma there that, that coins us, that that makes us who we are, rightly or wrongly so, those broken, weird, weird things that are going below the emotions and cause us the emotions, which then cause us the actions that we take or reactions that we take. So you had all that the childhood crap. And then on top of that, you now laid really solid foundations in guilt and shame. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> let's build on that, shall we? Well, let's let's build up. <laughs> build on that. Well, and I a lot of times, you know, whether depending on what how someone grew up, yes, there might be issues there, but it's amplified even more when you face different issues, you know, whether it is a pregnancy or abuse or all these other things that stays with you more and you hear it more in your head. 
you know, there was one particular thing said to me that it just played over and over in my head. And it was, do you know what you've done to your family? And so you're just, you carry that with you. You know, everybody tells you that you did this wrong and this is wrong. And so, yes, you do start believing it. And that question is actually evil because by asking you that question, your brain starts thinking about the bad things that you have done to your family. And it comes up with more and more and more. If I ask you now, what's two and two? Do not think about the number four. Do not think about the result. What is two and two? Do not think about the result. You can't. The figure four will come again and again and again. Your brain is designed to answer questions. So whatever you ask it, it will come up with, you know, why does that happen to me? Oh, okay. Let's see. So that's that's the self-confirmation of crappy, crappy questions. And that's why I call this evil, this question. If you actually think about it. And you never, how do you say, your whole... Uh, what it's done to you that never really got, you know, cause the question is what, you know, what you've done to your family, but this little voice inside is saying, well, what about me? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. what has this done to me? And, you know, everybody makes mistakes, mm-hmm. but what about me and what's going to happen to me? And it, it takes, yeah, it puts more focus on, the actions and the aftermath, as opposed to just caring about the person, right? That's going through it and having that empathy and and grace and understanding for someone, right? Where were you in relation to your um, to your development uh, with school and with jobs, etc.? Uh, how old were you with your pregnancy? Um, I was actually 18, so I was a little bit older, but I was also pretty naive when it came to certain things, relationships and sex. And again, it was something that you never talked about in the family, right? So it, I had finished high school, had a job and hadn't really made any decisions what I wanted to do. I wasn't sure yet. And it was in the, probably about December, it was actually just before Christmas, I found out that I was pregnant. When my son was born, I, I was probably about seven months pregnant when I turned 19. So a lot of times people say, well, you look at even compared today, if someone was 18 or 19, would they really place for adoption? Because they seem so much older. But when you're, this, this was my situation that when you feel the entire community is against you did I have parenting as as a choice I'm sure my family would have supported me but when you have the community just turning their backs on you I said how could you raise a kid in a community that is treating me like this and I haven't even had my child yet and I felt like that was the only option that I had was adoption. So even though some people say that they chose 
you know, they chose parenting or they chose adoption, whatever they decided on. For me, I didn't feel like I had a choice. It was more all the other ones were taken away from me. So someone else could have faced the same thing, but they ended up with a choice based on the influences in their life. And a lot of times when that choice is taken away from you, you, for me, it was anger. I was just angry. So even though at 19, I decided not to stay home, I moved to another city to go to school, to try and forget, to do what they were telling me to do. And I got a great education, but it was interwoven with some really bad decisions, even throughout college. <laughs> so, yeah. No shit, Sherlock. <laughs> does, does anyone in college make actually good decisions? That's not the, <laughs> come on. <laughs> What do you think? Your brain is still as, as mysteriously weird as, as, as it is with a teenager, maybe a tiny bit improved. But I didn't make great decisions, horrible decisions. Yeah. I'm, I'm lucky yeah. I got away with it. Let's put it like that. But I mean, yeah. so you were trying yeah. to escape, in other words. You came to another, uh, another town, you threw yourself at your education. And did you, were you able to out, outrun your demons? No. The, you, you know, call them demons, call them memories, call them um, anger, call them emotions, anything that triggers a reaction in you could just bubble up at any moment. So I could have gone through three months of school, everything would have been fine something would have triggered it. So I started turning to alcohol, mm. partying, uh, doing some drugs, and just unfortunately, the promiscuity part of it. Because when you have poor self-esteem, where you find the confidence, for me, yes, it was school, But when you can attract male attention, it's like, wow, I feel really good. And it made me feel good, but it's only temporary. It's counterfeit intimacy. It's, it does not. I love to <laughs> I term. just like that term because it's, yeah. <laughs> I learned, I learned the term um, about 20 years ago, but it's so, hits it right on the nail because uh -huh. As much as you're looking for a connection, you're looking for, you know, someone who will like you and love you and all these sorts of things, but it's, it, it is, it's counterfeit. It's not lasting. And you would find all these ways to try and cover your feelings, forget what you're feeling or what you're going through. And you would spiral down. So it was just more of a roller coaster. You do really good. And then it would go back down again. And then you would have a bad period. And I had an eating disorder. It was the same thing. You're, it was a way of trying to 
manage or control when you have these emotions and these this this stuff bottled up inside of you and you do your darndest to keep control over that but it's when you know and that's where you uh whether you're using alcohol drugs whatever that you try and keep it under control with that but again that just comes out in the most unexpected ways and a lot of times you don't even understand why it just creates a response in you that's really negative that causes you to do something that might make you feel better but it doesn't deal with the issue that caused it in the first place the emotion what did you experience when you got triggered when something set you off what were the responses in your body or um, over 24 hours what was to happen uh i know i used to get a lot of anger i this could have been 10 years after my adoption 15 years after and you would see you know a single mom getting onto a bus and Everybody's like, oh, come here, have a seat. You know, she's pregnant. Oh, how far along are you? Are oh, that's so nice. And they're so friendly to her. And I can just feel the blood boiling and it's just rising in me. And I'm so angry because they're treating her so nicely. It could be, hmm, just even putting myself, so a lot of times, not even understanding the emotion responding to something but just using a substance to try and kill it mm. these were your responses when you let's say you had one morning you saw that that young woman the young pregnant lady in in the in the transportation would you have flashbacks of your time in hospital would you think about back and uh, the experiences that you had then That particular situation, it would, yes, it would take me back to when I was pregnant and how mm. I was treated. Mm. And would and there be a comparison, right? Mm. Would there be at nighttime, would you, would you wake up and think about these things? Would you have nightmares? I don't remember particularly situations mm. like that where I would wake up and mm. just with anxiety. Mm. I, I think my issue was more, you know, if I saw this woman on the bus mm. with her child and the anger, I would probably get off the bus. Mm. And if I got to work, someone would say good morning. And I'd want to say, <laughs> 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 I tended to lash out at strangers mm. or just would even how do you say become more enclosed in my little world until mm. i it seemed like the emotion would pass you could nearly argue that this is a bit of a form of ptsd 
um, you have got you certainly have got these intruding thoughts. You have got suddenly the the anxiety, the anger, the things there. It it doesn't fit all the criteria of the PTSD, but it certainly it has left a deep, deep dark. How shall I call it? Your your it has left you with a huge scar and it, that that's it's a trauma all its all its own exactly right? exactly that's and what i'm saying yeah yeah you, you could take any woman who has placed her son for adoption and for me the triggers were seeing a pregnant woman mm. or um, a single mom or going to a baby shower mm. i i was selective on when i who i would go to baby showers with and it definitely would bring memories back mm. someone else might have a slightly different situation where they have different triggers it could be the smell of baby powder it mm. could be walking into a hospital again mm. this this smell so even though it's i'm not necessarily as strong as some of the PTSD. I know a lot of people go through from their trauma. There's definitely things that can trigger it for, for women when they faced a loss. And it's not even, I, I talk about birth moms, but when you think of women who have lost a child, miscarriages, their uh, SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, or through an accident and certain things will all of a sudden trigger a response because of the experience and the trauma that they went through as well. You're quite right. And it is, we need to accept that, that as a trauma and you don't need to think about, about war style, best friend being ripped apart by a shrapnel to qualify for PTSD. Um, it is trauma is unique to each and every one of us. So many people are in the same situation and some of them experience the same situation as a huge trauma, whilst others can shrug it off. So I think that is the important bit to realize that, that your response to, to the loss of a child regardless if it is for adoption or if it is for death, uh, it, is, it is a huge life-changing event. And some women can deal with that. And when I say deal with that, that doesn't sound right. They can make sense of it and can move on, whilst others are forced to live to, to not talk about it, like in your case, to keep it in the shadows from your own intention to run away from it, realizing that that didn't work and then trying to numb it. And the only way that we learn to numb it is alcohol, drugs, eating, sex, you name it, basically the whole addictive spectrum. Um, yeah. you, did, you did what thousands and probably millions of women have done before you, um, you tried to escape. Yeah. When did you realize that this is not working? When did the, the catalyst occur to your life? When did you decide to start writing this book? Well, it's interesting because I had made a decision to volunteer at 
it was a local pregnancy care center. And they do a lot of workshops in high schools. And I thought, and it was about dating relationships, setting boundaries and, and sex and protection, all that sort of full spectrum. And I thought, this is good. I want to do this because if I can give teenagers the information that they need and speak very openly about it, then they can maybe make a different decision than I did. So I went to it. But they said to me, in order to be a volunteer here, you need to attend one of their support groups because they knew my history. And it was it was a birth mom support group. And they said they wanted to make sure that if there's any issues that you had, that you have actually learned to deal with it, work through it. So that if you're counseling or, you know, talking with someone that it's a, you're working with the person and it's not all about you. And I said, sure, no problem. Um, I'm guessing it had been about 18 years after my adoption. And I started attending and they said, well, you know, there's a post-adoption registry. You can put your name in and maybe your son can find you. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I did that, kept attending. One night, the facilitator said to, said to the group, everybody was sharing their stories and what they've been going through. And she said, all right, everyone, bring out your pictures. And I'm like, what? I grabbed the handles on my chair so tight that I left fingernail marks in my hand. All the women in this group and young girls, I think the youngest at the time was 16, had placed their children in open adoption. So most of them had letters, cards, they would get pictures on a regular basis. I had nothing. All I had was the picture taken when my son was born. And when I had such a reaction and I did that so that I wouldn't break down in front of everybody again, pushing the emotion down. But that was such an aha moment. I'm like, wow, okay, I still have not dealt with this. Mm. So that was the starting point of seriously looking at what are the issues that I have. Um, I even attended an addictions recovery group thinking that was it. And it, it was a really good support group, but it only got me so far because it didn't go to the underlying issue. So then when I started going to the, the support group for birth mothers, Mm. that's when I could peel back those layers. I know it's such a common analogy, but it's so true because mm. the one layer is this, why am I angry at this? The other one is, well, why am I angry at them? And why am I sad on these days? Mm. And when you peel it back, you come back to the very core of the issue for me was my adoption. So for someone else that you peel back, well, okay, no, it's not addiction. You peel back this. Okay. No, it's not, a, it's not an eating disorder. No, it's not this. It's not this. And it's, it takes time and, and it's okay if it takes time to find it, but realizing the core issue was my adoption. Hmm. I needed to heal from what happened to me all those years before. 
And that's exactly that's exactly my realization. That's exactly what I do on this show. I started off, the show was called My Steps to Sobriety, because at that moment I sort of felt, well, sobriety, that is really what this is all about, isn't it? And very quickly did I realize, oh, I'm so wrong. That was actually six years down the line from my own rehab. So uh, by now, alcohol did not longer play any role in my life whatsoever. No, no urges, the odd, the odd memory, uh, sometimes strong memory, fair call, but uh, that was about it. And then very quickly, within 10, 20 interviews, I realized, no way. We need to address what really drives us to try to escape reality. And that is where my show actually came in. And that's where I, where I, when I saw your book and your message, I thought, no, this is so important because how many, how many women do adapt? How many women are actually out there? We must be talking hundreds of thousands. I mean, do you, do you have any statistics? Do you know how many young women have given their children away? Is there, is that known? That actually, I I can't answer. Huh. I don't know, but it's to me. I think it would probably blow our minds to exactly. think how many are out there who have placed children in adoption or who have lost children hmm. that we never they don't speak about. They Correct. it was actually and wasn't until I started my own journey and actually talking more about it. Yeah. Well, shoot, here's a friend I'd known for 10 years told me about her adoption experience. Someone else told me, oh, well, so-and-so is adopted. Exactly. And it just opens it up to talk. And it, it's unfortunate that there are so many women. And that's actually why I called the book Silent Moms, because there's so many, I think, who do feel that they're alone in their struggle. Mm. There's people who don't understand. Mm. I found there was an event, it, a lot of places hold it the day before Mother's Day. It's called Birth Mother's Day. And I went to one years ago and it was such a comfort when I walked in and all these stories everybody's sharing and I'm like, wow. Because I'd never met another birth mother. So I just thought I was the only one. I knew there was more out there, but I wasn't gonna tell a stranger who I was. So to be in a room with these other women was, was such a really neat feeling. What I found, though, was a lot of the events were just oh. about the grief and replaying the grief over and over again. And it wasn't enough for me. So, again, that was one of the things I did when I started my journey. And that, that was one it didn't take me where I wanted to go, but I kept looking and I kept trying things. Yeah. And that only shows that it's rare that there is one perfect solution for one perfect, of not perfect, for you, perfectly imperfect being that you come, the very first time that you look, you come across your perfect solution that fits only you. And you think you're right. Yet we sometimes think, Oh my God, I have tried to deal with that. It didn't work. See, that's it. I will, I will stop. I will never ever, I go back to drinking because that's so much easier. See, I have tried. It's the same thing when people tell me they, they have been to rehab and it didn't work. And that's the reason I'm drinking. Uh, that was shit. 
yeah, you tried one version of rehab, which may or may not have been a good rehab. Um, <laughs> and so <laughs> here you go. But it's I keep saying the same the same example. If your child, your little toddler, is finally getting off his bottom and trying his first steps, and then suddenly falls over, crashes onto the floor, what would you say? Oh my God! Stop! Everyone, stop! This child, no, but it it fell over. That's it. No more walking. Never ever. <laughs> No, no, no. And it's the same with with dealing with with trauma. It's the same with dealing with with our our mental health. Sometimes we are not ready to deal with the trauma. Sometimes we are not ready to deal with with whatever is really driving us bananas. Sometimes we are ready, but we have got the wrong guidance. We meet the wrong people. Uh, someone tries to, you know, if someone only has got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So it is that thing. So try to find the group that works for you. And I loved it how you said it, Teresa. You dealt first with your addiction and that got you so far. And then you felt, hang on, there was something missing here because the underlying reason why you were drinking was not addressed. And then you moved on into a different path mm -hmm. and suddenly you were able to grow and you were able to change. And that is so beautiful. You, you didn't give up. You actually went out there and you took the machete and made your own path until you came to a path that actually fitted you. And that is so beautiful to hear. I, I think it's important for um, what my, where my journey took me may have been completely different to someone else. And that would be just my encouragement to someone is just, like you said, try different groups mm. But I, I also found that I could only deal with one thing at a time. Mm. Something would bubble to the surface and it, it could have been, you know, like the thinking maybe I, I was an alcoholic and okay. And then something else would surface. And then once I looked at the major issues, I had to start dealing with emotions and it was learning to just, and there's exactly. that anger again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we respond. That's us. But it's, it's important to that, you know, like for someone to say, well, you know, I've got abuse issues. I've got this, I've got this, I've got this. And they get overwhelmed with it. And it's a matter of what is the most troubling, what is the most pressing issue for you right now? And that's what you work on. You may not be able to go back to the initial situation or incident that happened, but you can take the steps to work back towards that. Because if you think of it as a whole, it just might become so overwhelming and you just walk away from it and stay with your habits that you're, or how you're coping with everything right now. But that was, once I peeled back a few of those layers, it was my emotions were just, that's a totally different struggle when you're younger and you're forced to push your emotions down, you're not even really sure what you're feeling. And I literally had to learn to define what I was going through. And whether it was 
acknowledging what am I, I would have to ask questions. What am I feeling? Why am I feeling it? Um, Mm. Anger is such a really good example for me because it's been such a prominent emotion for so many years. A good example is my brother came home. He had a, him and his wife had just had a beautiful baby girl and all the family and friends are together and they, and they say, Oh, look, your first grandchild. So what is happening inside of me? I had to separate myself. I had to leave. I had to walk around the block a few times because in my mind, I'm like, no, she's not. You already have a grandchild. So this whole anger thing, but nobody acknowledges that. Nobody talks about it. So I calmed down. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not angry at them. This is their day. They have, they have this beautiful child that they wanted to share. And I get that. I don't want to take away from that. I says, my anger is my anger for a reason. Mm. And understanding why I got angry, who I'm angry at, and what (sighs) I'm going to do with it. And that was there's an entire section of my book that deals with that because I would go through something and I couldn't even tell you what I was feeling or what I was going through because I'd never learned how to. I, all I was able to do was push it down and then you cover it up with all the different vices. So you've never learned to actually feel your feelings. There's nothing wrong with our feelings. There's nothing wrong with being angry or sad or Mm. all the different emotions that we can have. There are feelings. It's what we do with them. We acknowledge them and what we do with them and how we can be more constructive with our responses. Yeah. And accept the feelings as messages from your soul and messages from your body. There are... Your body tries to tell you something here that maybe you need to deal with a certain aspect of your life a little bit more carefully. Maybe it is time to talk to someone who knows what he or she is talking about, a counselor, a psychologist, a life coach, a, 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 a GP, a family physician. You know, start with that and actually open up and start the dialogue. And that is the hardest thing to do, to actually admit to yourself that there's something needs addressing and that you actually take that first step. Once you start talking, it is like like a dam is breaking and there is no, no way of stopping that water. And it's so beautiful to actually start exploring that and listening to the words that are coming out of your own mouth. You think mm-hmm. suddenly, suddenly something is being said and you think, huh, huh, because you felt it and it was all confusing up there. The moment the words are formed by your brain, suddenly you can deal with it. That's where the journaling comes in. That's where actually writing things down comes suddenly in because your, your brain is actually giving you already solutions and is showing you what is going on, what it needs to be addressing. And that's beautiful. But it is it takes the first step. It takes the willingness to accept that you're not okay, that you, you know, it is time to take the bull by its horns. And it might be a little bull with very tiny little horns, but, you know, <laughs> address that one address that one little 
you know, minor thing like you're routinely having two and a half bottles of wine in the evening. Um, that might be the first thing you want to address. Um, and that's cool. That's cool. But then, yeah. It's, well, it, it's, and when we give ourselves permission to feel, um, because I know a lot of times when we feel something, we do, we try and drown it or however we try and mm. cover it up. Um, just being able to give ourselves permission saying it's okay to feel this. Mm. And I just remember the very first time I went out for a walk, I was trying to figure what was going on up here. And I remember going, wow, okay. I allowed myself to actually feel it. I processed it. And I'm like, that's actually kind of cool. Okay, now what am I going to do with it? Being anger was, again, top of the list. I would write anger letters. I never mailed any of them. I would either rip them up, burn them, throw them out. But it was just the whole process of just saying to this person, even if it's just me, just saying why I'm angry and and just getting it out. I think so much of that is just allowing ourselves to get it out. If we don't have someone to talk to, someone that we trust to share everything with, that's why same thing what you said, Stefan, that you can journal anything to get it out. Go for a walk, talk to yourself, just something that allows you to release what you're going through, your thoughts, your feelings. So one of the things that over my lifetime, certainly when I was younger, I I allowed myself to open a release valve. For example, if I was alone and I knew that there were shitloads of emotions going through my head, I would, well, at that time, have a glass of red wine. That was what I did. But I would put music on. I would put Les Miserables on. It's a, it's a musical, and uh, it is basically... Uh, for me, it reached into the deepest, darkest recesses of my heart. And within five minutes, I would be bawling my eyes out. I would be crying, sobbing, snot running, everything. To actually just release these emotions, to allow myself to feel. And this was the most beautiful thing. I could have done. And that was the only only way how I could deal with my emotions for a long time, bottle them up or then uh, actively release. And I could do that with sadness and depression and things like that. So I could do that. I could do it with the positive thing. I could completely change and switch my, my whole persona by putting the right music on. So music helped me a lot to to somehow deal with it. These were the times before I actually learned mindfulness before I get, went on to this journey of actually finding myself and learning to love myself. Um, that was many years before that. Did, did something like that work for you too? What were your... your... I, I find it so, I just, to me, that's so amazing that you found a way. So it was, it was a tool. It was something that worked for you. Yeah. Um, I, yes, I would watch really sad movies. Uh, on the day that I needed to release, I would just sit down and watch a couple movies just to let those emotions out. Hmm. So pretty common for me. But on other days, I just created, it was like ideas. 
another day that was hard for me was like a mother's day mm. when everybody's celebrating. I'm, and so for the first few years, it's difficult. So it just brings all this sadness. And I'm like, well, I, I don't want to uh, live it and relive it over and over again. I said, what can I do that's constructive that can still acknowledge who I am, even if I'm the only one that knows it. So I would go shopping and <laughs> just, oh, and on, like, escape. Yeah. no, I had a limit. I had a budget. <laughs> How often but would you stick would to just, it? I would go by myself. Right. It's pretty good every year, actually. <laughs> um, but the, I started the one year, it was just really weird. I went to the mall and I says, I don't even know what I want. And I ended up buying a picture that was of a boy in bed, a little boy in bed with a mom sitting with her back to, to you. And she was sitting on the bed as well. And it was, it started a yearly tradition that I would go on the hunt for a particular picture, depending on how I felt that year. And I did it for about six years straight. And it made Mother's Day an uplifting experience instead of one that I dreaded. Hmm. And all the, the pictures that I found, some of them are with children, some of them are not. But interesting enough, all the pictures of the women are either a side view or you don't see her face at all. But none of them have a full face view of her. And to me, that's, I don't know what the word is. Um, maybe it has a lot to do with how I feel as a mom, because I call myself a silent mom. I am a, a mom who's not acknowledged in society and how I see myself. I never really made the connection. It was just weird how you look at all the pictures that I've collected and you can't see any of the women's faces. And I'm like, interesting. Mm. And then I would do things for when it came to also my son's birthday, never knowing, you know, who adopted him, where he ended up, what he looks like, what does he do? Did he ever get married? All these things that you constantly question. Mm. And I started doing things on his birthday as well. And I thought I'm going to save these and I put them in a little treasure box, I guess you could call it. And I thought if I ever see him one day, <laughs> then I can give it to him. Hmm. I locally, they have what they call birth tree forests. So each year when someone has a child, they can dedicate a tree. So they have different areas around the city they will plant all these trees and they're dedicated to these parents and their children. So I dedicated a tree to him and I know exactly where it is. And it grew, <laughs> it grew from a seedling and now it's probably 15 feet tall. I, oh, I think one was a picture frame. I might've put my picture in there and I did it again for about four or five years. I can't even remember what's in them because I sealed them. And so doing things like that to find 
positive ways, I think, to encourage our journey. Anybody who's lost a child, I, I can't imagine that, you know, maybe they had a baby shower and they have all these baby things. It's not like they have to throw it away. It's, it's reminders of our journey, what we've come through. Each time you open the box, the grief becomes less and less. And, and it, it was the same for me. I actually still have my shoe box that has been duct taped together with all the items that I, I had when I stayed at the home mm. at that other city. Yeah. It's beautiful. And that is your journey. That is, that is how you make sense of it. And it is so beautiful that you have decided to speak out because you are now on your journey to share your lessons and to give hope to others. And that's mm -hmm. what your book is all about. Show us your book so that people can oh. actually see it. <laughs> Thanks, Stefan. No, absolutely. Dear. Silent Mums. That's what I think. Healing our wounded souls. And there is so much grief out there. And it is so important that we address that. Not wallow in it. Again, I liked what you said earlier with regards to that, that, that certain meetings were all about grief. Yes, it is grief, but I think allow yourself to grieve, but then find a way to make sense out of this loss and create something positive out of it. You have created this book, you have, you have volunteered, you found ways that put a smile on your face because you're helping others. And that's so powerful. That is, that is making sense of a loss, sharing, sharing your feelings and therefore hoping that someone else don't have to go deep down into the abyss where you have been. And that is so beautiful for that. I commend you. This is gorgeous. This is, thank you very much for, for, from the bottom of my heart, because I know that you will touch some women out there who otherwise, I don't know, would have been, been in a, in a very different place. So no. I, that was actually, um, thank you for, for saying that. When you have gone through a lot of your healing journey and you still see others struggling and with such pain and still feeling such loss, that's what really gets me to the core because I understand the pain. Um, I was at a fundraising banquet. This was years ago and I was actually sharing my story and in the very back of the room, there was a woman who was just sobbing throughout my entire presentation. And when it was over and done, I tried so hard to get to the corner to see her, but she was gone. And it was her. And my realization that there's so many more out there. And I, I felt so... Oh, so bad for her that she's still in so much pain so many years later. And how can I help them? How can I, you know, just to get the information that I have and see if what I've learned can help others. And so it, that was another pivotal moment, I guess you could say, that really propelled 
the book forward. And even though I like I wrote one edition, but it was I had another editor read it and she goes, you're still kind of angry. (laughs) I read a lot of anger and resentment in this. I think we need to kind of rework it a bit. So I'm so appreciative of all the people that have, you know, I've met along the way through this journey that have, that have fine tuned it even more and and created it or turned it more into a, a workbook instead of just a book to read, because that's the whole point. That's what I did. And I know others have done and can do to journal, take notes, everything to work through. And my hope is that, yeah, it does help. Even if it's just one other person, it's, it's all been so worth it. It's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And guys, it is, have looked down there into the description of the video and of the YouTube, uh, of the video and of the podcast, uh, because there are there is a link to the book down there, and it is if this if this interview has shaken you and you would like to to learn more, the book is a great way. Are there other ways that people can get hold of you, Teresa? Absolutely. When they go on the website, I've got a link to email and um, yes, and I always get back to them within 24 hours. But I, one thing I do want to say is that even though the book focuses on women, I have a birth father who's also read it and he, how do you say, he and many others like him are a forgotten part of the adoption triangle. Because when a woman gets pregnant, sometimes she does the adoption and the guy doesn't even know or gets forgotten. And he gave some really neat insight and some of his quotes and his information is included in the book as well. Mm. You know, know that's, that's, volume, that's volume two. You know, that is the next book that you need to. (laughs) It takes two to tango. I might have to go and find a male psyche. (laughs) (laughs) It's so interesting because um, women are nurturers and men are protectors. So if a child that's theirs, they can't protect, they, they can't do what they're meant to do and they lose control of that as well so i know there are fathers that are impacted by grief and loss as well so it's someone that we don't want to forget even though the focus is on the women there's so much of it you know whether we talk loss or emotions grief any of that it affects both men and women Maybe differently, but it still affects both. Gentlemen, if you have listened to this interview and you feel a calling here, you know who to get in touch with. Teresa is ready. Um, she has gone through that journey, but in reality, is it is not the end. She hasn't nowhere reached the end because she has dealt with one thing in her life, and now she has she has well, 
finished a little chapter, a teensy-weensy part of her path. But I, I dare to say that you will have many, many other experiences waiting and you will grow as a woman. You will grow as, as, as a mentor, as an author, as a, as, you know, your story is not finished. Your story is only just starting. And that is so exciting. That is so beautiful. And and I can't well, wait. Well, and I, I think our I think our our journey to whether it's through grief or something that's impacted us, I don't think it's something that ever truly goes away. It's something that we carry with us. It's how we respond to it. The more settled we are, the more that we have worked through our journey. Hmm. That as the memories and as our grief kind of comes to the surface, it's not as hard on us anymore. Um, exactly. I, cause now I look at it, you know, here I'm almost 40 years later and I deal with things differently. I've, I've learned, I have, I have ways of coping and it's still going to come up. It's still going to come up on mother's day. It's still going to, there's going to be issues that I know I will encounter but I'm so much more equipped and it's part of my journey. I wouldn't expect it ever to go away. It's part of me. It's part of who I am. And I think it's the same for anybody who's mm. gone through a difficult time. We, we want to wish it away. And I even had someone ask me if you could change that one situation that started it all, would you? And I'm like, no, it's, as difficult as it was, I am who I am today because of it. And like you said, <laughs> like you said, it's just something I think that as we go through life, um, you know, it changes us, helps us grow, become wiser in our old age, hopefully. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I'm still waiting for that to happen, but it's, I, I'm optimistic. <laughs> no. Oh, please. This was yeah. a beautiful interview, uh, Teresa. I'm so, so grateful and humble that you shared all this insight and all this honesty. It is a very, very important topic that we don't really talk away at uh, the hawk about it. We, we try to wish it away. We try to wish, we try to forget the, the hard things that have happened to us. But most of the time that ends in its own tragedy when essentially the pus erupts at a most uncomfortable time in your life um, because you have not dealt with the underlying wounds. And I think that is that is hopefully why you guys are here, why you guys are listening to this podcast and viewing this YouTube video. And it is, uh, I, I wish you all that we have planted the seed that is starting to grow in your mind, that it is okay not to be okay, that it is normal to have scars, but that, that they don't define you. They have made you who you are. But now mm -hmm. imagine if you actually were to think actively, where do I want to be? Who do I want to be in a year's time? Who would be, you know, who am I? And try to create this new you and then take very active steps every day, little micro habits to get you closer to that you. What a beautiful path that is. 
So the past does the past does not equal the future. And whatever has occurred in your life, guys, it is I sent you a huge bear hug out there. It is it is it is what it is. You cannot undo the past, but you can very much change right now how you deal with the present, how you live in the present, and how you prepare for the future, how you plan to move forward. It is, these are exciting times, How, whatever tragedy has occurred to you, because you're right now here with us and you're deciding, no, actually, actually, this 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 stupid guy there on, on YouTube is actually right. He is actually right. It is, I write the next chapter of my book. I decide what tomorrow will bring within within reason. You know, you can't just wish that you're a multimillionaire if you have never actually put, a cent on top of another cent um, but you know it doesn't mean to say that you cannot start learning and start growing and start developing and that's beautiful Teresa did I did we both keep going and you know come along on the journey guys because it's it's a beautiful life and make the most out of it whatever whatever life has brought you so far Teresa, I sent you a huge hug. Thank you so much for, for coming onto my show. Um, it was a beautiful interview. Thank you. And thank you so much. It, it's It's been a, such a blessing to, to meet you and mm. just to have this opportunity to share lives and to encourage mm. others. Um, mm. Thank you for the opportunity. Cool. You guys out there, stay strong. Look after yourself. Bye. Dream.